Hi, I'm David Freudberg, and I'm on a mission. Since I was a high school intern in public radio back in NPR's first year on the air, I've devoted my working life to seeking out and disseminating knowledge that I hope will be enlightening and will benefit the lives of our listeners. But the grants we get, the generous support provided from foundations and some others, simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep this going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. One of the surprises for all of them was to realize that each was acting with integrity and that they were people of goodwill acting on what they believed to be right. Pro-life and pro-choice advocates learn how to have real dialogue even as they passionately disagree. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. In the high-pitched debate over abortion in the mid-1990s, bringing embattled activists on both sides to the table seemed to require nothing less than tragedy. Farewell, Shannon. The world is better for your having lived. Rest in peace and in the love we bear you. Over a thousand mourners gathered at Arlington Street Church in Boston on a cold New Year's Eve in 1994. They shed tears for 25-year-old Shannon Lowney, a bright, empathetic receptionist who had been gunned down the day before while at work at the Planned Parenthood Clinic in suburban Brookline. Down the road at another clinic that performs abortions, 38-year-old receptionist Leanne Nichols also was shot and killed minutes later. Five others were wounded in the rampage. The next day, police captured a troubled lone gunman, John Salfi, a 22-year-old who had sometimes participated in anti-abortion activities. In 1996, he was convicted of first-degree murder and later that year was found dead in prison. The horrific shootings left both pro-choice and pro-life activists profoundly stunned and desperate for some way to defuse their disagreement. When a dialogue group quietly put out feelers, leaders from both sides agreed to a series of confidential talks. They would embark on a remarkable odyssey of listening across a vast chasm of what seemed to be irreconcilable beliefs. But a moment of breakthrough occurred 12 months after the terrifying incident that induced them to come together. One of the participants, Reverend Ann Fowler, an Episcopal priest who is pro-choice, remembers her reaction when she and Nikki Nichols Gamble, the president of Planned Parenthood, spotted two pro-life participants in an unlikely place. A year after the clinic shootings, we had a memorial service um, at the temple on Beacon Street for the women who had been killed and with Nikki and me presiding. And Barbara and Fran came and uh, 
were there with pro-choice people. Um, I mean, Nikki and I were both moved to tears to see them there, and we embraced, and it was just, it was very much a sense of barriers had been broken down in a public space. And then um, when there was some some fearfulness about Nikki's safety, uh, and the pro-life women found out about it and alerted her and all of us, and we were all, again, very, very moved that that, you know, they would be active about being sure that, that Nikki was safe. I think we, we all felt that we had transcended um, our disagreements in very human ways. Gestures of goodwill and good faith can go far in softening relationships and turning down a flame that had grown too fiery. But the six women participating in the dialogues were all known to be deeply committed activists in their respective causes. The views of Nikki Nichols Gamble of Planned Parenthood and Madeline McComish from Massachusetts Citizens for Life have not fundamentally shifted. I don't think any woman should be required to carry a developing fetus in her womb against her will. We don't require of any individual Uh, We don't place upon them a requirement to use their body to preserve the life of anyone else in our society. We don't require organ donations. We don't require blood transfusions. You know, we just simply don't do it because we say to people, your body is is your sphere of influence. Well, certainly I believe that each individual is a unique creation of God that will never come again, which is one of the reasons that I feel abortion is such a tragic thing. This is someone who will never come again and who is a reflection of God in a very special way. Each of us is a reflection, I believe, of God in a very special way. I don't think... Uh, any of us would have been able to come to the table at all had we thought that the goal was to compromise or to look for a compromise. Because I think we believe there is no compromise between the two sides on the question of abortion. The thing that made it so interesting and so important to have these dialogues was that we really uh, wanted to understand one another in how we did think differently. The abortion debate has become an emblem of mutually exclusive beliefs. The adversaries seem hopelessly fixed in deadlock. Basic rights are at stake for both sides, and the adamant parties can see no formula by which they might somehow split their difference. But brokering a compromise was never the goal of Laura Chazen, founder of the Public Conversations Project, which convened the dialogues. Most conversations that happen these days about policy issues are about agreement. And it's a stretch for most people to think there could be, you know, what else there could be except, you know, finding agreement. But this was about finding understanding, which because of the generation of using code words and making assumptions and attributions and stereotypes, it's a lot of work to get to actually understand where somebody differs from you on this is, is coming from. So the goals were about developing uh, mutual understanding and respect, 
um, having direct communication with one another rather than through the media, uh, about clarifying their differences and what they share. This was about relationships. It was about understanding. But that given those goals, um, people were very willing to make the effort. How do you help unyielding foes begin to build authentic relationships when, by their own admission, they had already written each other off as misguided and immoral? That was the challenge before Laura Chazen and her colleague in facilitating the discussions, Susan Padziba. In order to listen to somebody who you very much disagree with, you need to feel that you're in a safe space, that you'll be able to respond without being attacked. You'll be free to ask questions, to clarify things that you don't understand. Um, I think I think overall, Laura and I were something of an anchor that somehow they could open up to new information because somehow the ship wasn't going to sink. I remember coming out of the first few meetings especially, just I just couldn't believe that we got through it and how well we got through it. It, it was almost miraculous. Madeline McComish of Citizens for Life. We had very, very strict ground rules, and they were ve- it was very necessary to have very strict ground rules as to how we spoke to each other and without interrupting, always listening, always asking for clarification, all, never using the words that we had, each side had designated as hot buttons. I personally think that language is uh, very important and probably uh, critical to an ability to talk across large divides. Nikki Nichols-Gamble of Planned Parenthood. That if you're, if you're not able and not committed to trying to articulate your position in a fashion that doesn't enrage and inflame, you don't have any possibility of being heard at all. So that even when you know that you're, that you're not going to persuade the other person to your point of view, you still can't talk without, um, without understanding what sets the other side off and making a real commitment to try to avoid doing that. We spent many, many, many hours uh, discussing language the terms that would not be used within the dialogue, and in some cases, terms that we agreed to use for the sake of the dialogue. Barbara Thorpe directs the pro-life office of the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston. Well, the most obvious example is human fetus. We may have spent six months, would you say, Nikki? Uh, it It was a long time in very extended conversations to come to agreement on the use of that term. Uh, for the sake of the dialogue. And I think what was, um, it was interesting in that process of discussing our reasons for not using one term or the other that was proposed led us and was a means for us to go to some deeper understanding. Let me ask, in the process of uh, agreeing to use the term human fetus, what did you learn about the pro-choice side? 
um, I wasn't sure, I guess, that the pro-choice women considered the fetus human. It was, for me, um, I, I think actually um, rather disturbing um, in some ways that the pro-choice women would agree to use the term human fetus and still support um, the taking of the human fetus, the killing of the human fetus in abortion. Um, that, that was in some ways even more disturbing. Nikki? I, I think, in fact, that the, the willingness for those of us who are pro-choice to acknowledge that uh, a fetus in a woman's womb is human, uh, I think I, I do understand that that was probably a surprise for the other for the other side, because I think I think there there are a couple of other phrases that uh, Barbara's side really finds very difficult, and those are phrases like products of conception and termination of pregnancy, uh, medical terms that uh, I think the other side feels or feel to be a way that we on the pro-choice side distance ourselves from the real implications of making choices about pregnancy. I don't think those of us uh, who, who are really thoughtful of, about our position uh, have ever not understood that that a fetus is indeed human, you know that we're not talking about a pig or a rat. Um, the The words that for me were hardest to hear directed toward me were things like baby killer, murderer, Nazi, uh, those associations, and. I, I actually, I actually need to check this out. I think you don't think of me as a murderer. No, I don't. Never use that term. And that's true of the others as well. So it was uh, actually, uh, it, it was helpful to me to know that I wasn't put in a murderer category because I have always found that uh, particularly uh, noxious. People on the pro-life side would start talking about the experience of abortion as tragic or horrific. Reverend Ann Fowler. And I had, I said, as we were asked to in the, one of our first meetings to tell our stories, I said that I had had an abortion and that it had not been an horrific or tragic experience for me. And I talked about that at some length in, in the early days of our uh, of our meeting, and there was no response to that, which I commented on later. I mean, I told my story, and nobody said anything, and we sort of went on to something else. Did it did it upset you in some way that it they did. didn't yeah, respond? It did. Um, I think it it um, 
I mean, my first line of, of uh, psychological response is, is anger, and then I get, to, I get to hurt and so forth later on. And I did feel as if I had told something that was personal and intimate, and there was a sort of blank um, around the table. And then at a later time, and on a number of later occasions, people would start to describe abortion with their words, and I would say, now, wait a minute, you know, I have had this experience, and you have not had this experience, and you cannot tell me what my experience was. I remember that Anne was upset that she felt that we had not responded when she told her story, but I think that there was almost the feeling, at least I almost had the feeling, that she didn't want us to say anything, that there was almost like a wall there or something. And when we heard, when I heard that she felt, that Anne felt hurt, that we had not responded more sympathetically, I, I again felt very bad because my normal inclination would have been to respond. Whenever I hear of, of a woman who has an abortion, really, I just, my, my feeling is real sympathy for that woman. It is it's a terror. I feel, I believe it's a terrible experience. My reaction to her is to try to reach out and, and say, you know, sort of, if not physically, but emotionally hug her and, and say, you know, it must have been very hard. Mm-hmm. As opposed to deliver a sermon? Oh, yeah, right. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't do that to a woman. I mean, it's, it's got to, had to have been extremely difficult, and to lay a guilt trip on somebody would be a terrible thing. As the abortion controversy shows, the nature of democracy in a diverse culture all but guarantees vigorous discussion among divergent people who are affected by public policy. The ability of our society to hold full and fair debate is one measure that our freedom is intact. But if the atmosphere becomes too rancorous and polarized, is public discourse ultimately diminished? What do we lose if we forget how to listen? Laura Chazen of the Public Conversations Project. We are an argument culture, and we're, you know, disagreement is, you know, we've we've elevated disagreeing to a fine art. Is that a bad thing? Um, I think, I think it's a very limiting thing. I think disagreeing and disagreeing has its has its uses, but it's a it's a, a commentary to me that it took the tragedy of what happened in Brookline. It took that to amass a critical amount of motivation, time, and willingness to run the risks to put oneself in a position where one might actually learn something about people who have differing points of view. You know, I, I think the art of listening to someone that you strongly disagree with is not too different from listening to people that you agree with. Nikki Nichols Gamble. I think the fact is that in our society, we don't spend very much time listening to one another. Um, that 
you know, even among those with whom we agree, uh, our tendency is to constantly be thinking about what we want to say rather than what another person is saying. Um, I think listening is almost a lost art, and I, I know that I certainly, um, you know, d don't have a good record on this, but I think it's, it's really very, very important to listen to people and to listen for what they really mean and to ask them what they really mean. Not to assume that you know. Yeah. And I don't think we begin to do enough of that in our society, and I think that's what gets us into all kinds of problems. It does have a lot to do with what we assume the other person is thinking. And we, we don't listen well. If, and this is especially, I think, on, on our issue where there's a lot of labels. Um, so we assume that the labels mean, oh, they must think this. Barbara Thorpe. Really, really listen so that you're hearing it as if for the first time. Did you have to really examine yourself in the course of these oh, yeah. dialogue sessions as to how well you were objectively listening to the other person? Yes. Yeah. And, and in fact, the other people would help you do that <laughs> when they would tell you, you didn't hear me, <laughs> or, or have something come back at you where you knew the other person did not feel listened to. And I, and I think one of the things that we had in the dialogue, which we, is rare probably in the course of our other kinds of uh, life experiences, is, is the time. We spent a lot of time with one another. Um, and, and I think that that being willing to take the time to listen um, was important. If you're constantly in a hurry or constantly trying to be working on your own, your own stuff, your own speech, there's no way that you can really be hearing another person. Also, another characteristic of being a good listener is of looking for difference and diversity in the conversation. Rather than uh, anticipating that somebody's going to say something that you absolutely agree with or that's going to you know, be building on something you've said, is to be conscious of the goal of adding value to a dialogue, of adding difference to a dialogue, so that you're not sitting around just agreeing with everybody all the time, so that you're, you're asking yourself to move beyond uh, where you are. We haven't changed our minds here. Uh, we haven't changed one another's minds, but I think our hearts have been changed. And how, how has your heart been changed? Well, I've, I have learned to love women um, for whom I had, you know, hypothetically, uh, probably contempt is not too strong a word. Um, you know, I, I didn't think I was, I had stereotypes, I had prejudices, I didn't think I was going to respect them, let alone love them and, um, or trust them. And I would, I would, uh, if I had a personal problem or need, I would... Um, 
not hesitate to ask any of these women for help. Nearly six years after beginning their private discussions, the abortion dialogue participants were able to reach agreement on the wording of a lengthy article published in 2001 describing their journey together. They characterized more than 150 hours of formal sessions as an experience that has astonished and enriched us. The article goes on to explain, these conversations revealed a deep divide. We saw that our differences on abortion reflect two worldviews that are irreconcilable. If this is true, then why do we continue to meet? Because when we face our opponent, we see her dignity and goodness. Embracing this apparent contradiction stretches us spiritually. Facilitator Laura Chazen. This is the second most transforming thing that I've ever done in my life. The first was having children. Um, and there was something about the experience. It began to be referred to in, I believe, the second meeting when in one of the closing comments someone said, I feel we're standing on holy ground. There was a sense for me that something larger than life stirred everybody in that circle to their depths. This was a profoundly safe place. And it was a place in which all of them could be 100% who they were across all the roles and sectors of their life. Howard Thurman used to talk about the sound of the genuine, that when I can speak the sound of the genuine in me and that when I hear it in you, that something happens that is transforming. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network, Incorporated. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Brendan Tapley and Seth Doraswamy. Special thanks to WBZ-TV Boston for archival audio. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. To download an audio copy of this program and access other resources, please visit humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. You can also access our other programs and send us an email from our website. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. This episode, Uncommon Ground, is dedicated to the memory of Laura Chazen. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind.